Mark chapter 11, we're going to begin in verse 27. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 33 this morning. I'll pause quickly while you are opening your Bible or your app. And I'll let you know ahead of time, I originally planned to preach this passage as well as the other behind it, begin Mark chapter 12. Uh, and then I realized, what am I thinking? I c- can't preach one sermon in a sermon. I'm trying to attempt two passages today. So I have cut down our sermon to only focusing on this one passage. We're going to be looking at verses 27 to 33, and let's read together. And they came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, he, meaning Jesus, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven... Or from man? Answer me. And they discussed with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I want you to imagine arriving at work tomorrow morning. Imagine that you're working in a very large company. For some of you, that's not hard to imagine. This is you already. You arrive Monday morning to... A project, a massive project that you've been working on all week. The biggest project of the year. You've got everything right. Everything is set up. Everything is exactly the way that you had prepared it. And you arrive on Monday morning to find things in absolute chaos. Everything is turned over. Everything is upended. Everything you diligently set out, you walk in and it is chaos. You hurry to your office. And as you're approaching your office, you see somebody at your desk. Acting like he owns the place. Sitting there, using your computer, your stuff. And immediately you don't run to confront him. What do you go do? You go to find the rest of the managers to tell them, I don't know if you've seen the mess, but it is chaos down there on the, the, uh, the, the, the bottom floor where we've laid out everything. We're about ready to have the big festival. We're about ready to have the big fair. And it's chaos. You tell your bosses, you tell them all that's going on. And together you turn around to go find this gentleman who's sitting at your desk typing on your computer. He's not there any longer. You look down. 
You see all the workers gathered around this man. This intruder is literally gathering up all of the workers and he's talking to them. And he's talking to them about the project. He's talking to them about the chaos that he created. And he's telling all of the workers, the reason for all of this is because your managers are doing the exact same thing that got the previous managers fired. And so I came in and I tore it all down. Managers sitting on the outside, unable to even conceive what is taking place. Who is this guy? What is he doing in our building? What is he doing in our office? Why is he talking to our workers? More importantly, why do our workers sit there like they're enjoying things and they're nodding their heads? They're in complete agreement. If this was a situation that you walked into a Monday morning, what do you think your response would be? What would be your response? Go ahead. What's the first thing you do? are you? Why are you here? Right? You would want to know identity. You'd want to know what else. Who gave you the authority? Who do you think you are? You might also have made a a call to the cops, the police to say, hey, there is somebody causing chaos here in our business. And so our first and natural response when we see somebody intruding into our personal space, coming into a place where we have authority, would be to ask, who are you and who gave you that authority? Now, if you didn't make the connection, the illustration I gave is not very far off from what we just saw with Jesus the day before, walking into the temple, turning over the tables, and then gathering the people and teaching them, challenging the current religious leaders, and in a sense, preaching prophetic judgment on the false worship of Israel. We have some extra and additional sound effects that are not coming from me, that we will get taken care of right now. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the passage of Mark 11, 27 to 33, and we're only going to focus on one specific thing. This will be the simplest outline you have ever seen. It is simply one point. We're going to be driving at one question. We're going to look at how it impacts and applies to our life. So this morning... We're going to focus in on that one question. That one question I want to share with you up front is a question that will literally change the outcome of your life. You need to know this before we begin because the question of the the leaders here in this passage is a question that all of us need to be asking ourselves and it's this, by what authority are you doing these things. 
Jesus walks into the temple. He begins the day before. He overturns the tables. And he begins teaching the crowds with authority. And if you could imagine the reaction to what would happen if we transport that story to modern times, if somebody were to come into your workplace, and if somebody were to come in and begin to do what Jesus did, I believe our reaction would be almost, not just similar, but would be almost exactly the same. Which was to immediately confront this intruder and ask him, how are you here in our midst? Who gave you the power? Who gave you the authority? Who gave you the right to challenge us? So let's begin to unpack this one question. By what authority are you doing these things? It's the only thing that we want to answer today. And then we're going to take a look at how does this apply to us today. Before we dive in to verses 27 to 33... I want to invite you to look back to verse 25 from the previous story. Go ahead and look back to verse 25. Let me just get my Bible. Because I want to show you something very important about this passage that should lead you to trust in the Scriptures, to trust in the authority of the Scriptures. The previous story that we covered was the lesson of the withered fig tree, and it ends in verse 25 where it says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father... uh, Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. Do you notice that verse 25 moves to verse 27 and there's no verse 26? Anybody notice that? Missing verse. Anybody know why? The reason why we have so many manuscripts of the scriptures and we are so confident in what the scriptures say is that what we know is that verse 26, one that is not in there, was not included or or the, the words that were in that verse were not included in the most trustworthy transcripts that we have. If you want to know what those words were, were they some kind of heresy? No. Were they any kind of false doctrine? No. The words were directly from Matthew. Those words said, here's the deleted verse, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. We actually read that verse when we looked at and did a cross-reference. But just so you know how exact the Scriptures are, the places where we know that the most reliable manuscripts do not have uh, this edition. This is why your Bible skips from verse 25 to verse 27. That's not the focus of the passage, but I just wanted to point out why we trust in the reliability of the Scriptures. It is exact enough, the copies we have in the New Testament are exact enough that we know how the Scriptures should be read and what they should include. This was a case, is there anything wrong? No. Was there anything heretical? No. But we know that that verse that was added, most likely by a scribe later, uh, adding an addition to this passage. So that's just a separate aside. Simply want to point out to you, you should trust the scriptures. They are a reliable and faithful account of what Jesus said and what he did. 
Let's move to now looking and picking up in our story. One thing that we have said over and over again is that this is the last week of Jesus' life. So just by, by way of connection, the story where it picked up this morning, where it says, and they came again to Jerusalem, this was exactly after the, the uh, story from last week of the withered fig tree. So they got up in the morning. They were walking on the road. They walked past the withered fig tree, which we discussed, or I guess it wasn't last week. It was the last time that I preached. And now they continue on, and now they arrive at the temple. So you understand this is one account, same day. It may have been only a half hour later from the previous passage that we just read. Okay, Just want to give you a time stamp there so that you're processing same day, just maybe 30 minutes later, Jesus now walks into the temple, and he's with his disciples. And we believe this to be Tuesday, March 31st, AD 33. This is uh, it, the, the best accounting of what was taking place in Jesus' life. So now, let's begin with verse 27. It says, they came walking in the temple. Now, this is pretty gutsy. Because the day before, Jesus was in the temple, and he completely turned everything on its head. He walked by, and those who were uh, selling animals, remember, he, he turned over the, the exchange tables. He literally had a, a whip a cat of nine tails. He was driving those who were selling goods out of the temple. Remember from uh, the this, this sermon several weeks ago, he was literally not allowing them to take the shortcut through the temple. All of those who were kind of using the temple as, as uh, common everyday grounds, taking a shortcut through, Jesus stops allowing the temple to be used like a marketplace. That's just the day before. And you can imagine that when all of these leaders heard about what Jesus did or saw what he did, that they were prepared for him the next day. I think if that guy shows up again, we're going to have a plan. We've got to be ready, which is you're seeing the plan today. Jesus shows up the very same place that he had just overturned the day before. And it says the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Let's just pause for a moment And let me clarify who these groups are that they mention. The chief priests would have been in charge of all of the daily activities of the temple. Everything that was taking place in regard to the worship of of the Israelites and the sacrificial system and the, the temple and the courts itself, everything that revolved around the temple was officiated by the chief priests. And there was a singular chief priest. So the first group is these chief priests. The second group is the scribes. Scribes in ancient Israel, these were the learned men whose only job it was to study the law. And it would be somewhat similar to what we think of lawyers today, but their job wasn't the entire law. It was only the scriptural law. And they were to know everything the law said, and they were to also know how to interpret, and they even wrote commentaries. On these things, so they wrote commentaries uh, that would have been official for people to know what does the scriptures mean. The third group was the elders, and the elders had been in existence ever since Moses. So when Moses, remember when when Moses is leading people of Israel, and they're too much for him, and Moses, uh, his father-in-law Jethro says, "You need to appoint elders." Ever since that time, 
the Israelites, or the Jewish people, had elders who were elected uh, mature men who were representatives of the people. And so that had never gone away. We, we just talked this morning about elected officials. Uh, in Israel, they had elected elders. These were representatives of the people. And so when Jesus walks in, he is greeted by these chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Another word that you may have heard in the scriptures or read is the Sanhedrin. Anybody familiar with that from the scriptures? The Sanhedrin? These three groups make up the Sanhedrin. If you want to know, when the scriptures refer to the Sanhedrin, what is, what is that? It would, the Sanhedrin is the highest court of law. And it would, we oftentimes, I don't know the, the terms other countries use in the U.S., we call it the Supreme Court. There is no higher uh, law in the land. Once we make rules and laws, then the ruling court. And the ruling court can hand down decisions. That's the Sanhedrin. These three groups make up that Sanhedrin. So do you get a picture of the kind of influence, the kind of power, the kind of men who approached Jesus when he walked into the temple that day? Jesus, an unrecognized rabbi from Galilee who is not from Jerusalem, who is there to only celebrate the Passover, and who the day before had walked in and just turned this temple and the little world that these men rule over into absolute chaos. That same guy walks in the next day. He's walking through the temple, and you see it right in the text. Immediately as he walks in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. You don't tell me they didn't have lookouts. You've you got to tell me. Every man they had, like, if you see that guy again, you tell us. Because we're ready for him. And so as soon as somebody let them know, they know that Jesus, man, I cannot believe it. I didn't think he'd even come back. He came back. He's walking through the temple. These men approach him. These things, let's look at verse 28, it says these things. If you want to know, uh, in this passage, it might not be clear, taken out of context, but these things is specifically talking about the things he did the day before. The fact that he came in and turned over the money tables, then he was driving people out, but then he also sat and was teaching the people. And so these things is specifically referring to what happened the day before. In verse 28, they're going to challenge him. And this is where our title comes from. And it says, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you or who gave you the authority to do them? What's taking place here is the fact that the leaders are trying to set a trap for Jesus. Think about what's going to happen. They've approached Jesus and said, who gave the authority to do this? In their minds, this is the way they're going to get rid of Jesus. Because how does he answer this? If he says he doesn't have their authority, which he clearly doesn't, and guess who runs the temple? Then all they need to do is in front of all the people in the crowds, say, he just admitted he does not have our authority, and now we're going to use our authority and kick him out. We're going to call the police. We're going to, I don't know if the, the temple had its own squadron of enforcers. I don't believe they did. I think they actually relied on the Romans because Jerusalem did not rule itself. 
And so if, if they were going to get the authorities, they would go get the Romans, and what they would simply say is, we have somebody causing insurrection. And that's the one thing the Romans didn't stand for. They would immediately, the law would fall heavy on anyone who was uh, causing turmoil or causing the, the chaos in the city. So they're thinking, he has to admit that he doesn't have our authority. The only other option is that he says his authority came from God himself. And as soon as he says this, they know that they want to charge him with blasphemy. You can't sit here and call yourself a servant of God, not in front of us, not in front of the people. So they think they have him. Either way, if he gives an answer, one, he's not under our authority, we kick him out. Two, he's saying he's under God's authority, God sent him here, we'll charge him for blasphemy. Either way, we solved our problem. Jesus will be taken care of. Now in verse 29, you see that their plan didn't go so well. And this is the danger of Jesus. Jesus turns everybody's life upside down when you meet him because nobody can stay the same. They approach Jesus thinking this problem will be solved and Jesus is going to turn the tables on them. Because instead of getting in a debate, instead of getting in a challenge, instead of Jesus answering and them being able to to accuse him of blasphemy, instead of admitting that he didn't have the authority and they were the, the correct leaders, they were the leaders of Israel, they had the authority in the temple, Jesus instead asked them a question. Now, we don't know the exact context, but you've got to know that the temple is not a private place. It's a public place. And everywhere Jesus went, not only were his disciples, but we know that there were crowds. And so this is not a private discussion off in a side room of the temple where just the leaders of Israel and Jesus are. This is a public discussion. There's crowds around, and we can see that from the context when they say they're afraid of the people. And so Jesus is going to ask them a question, and because the crowds are there, they're put in the situation that we now have to answer. And here's Jesus' question. It's a brilliant question. Jesus asked them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? When we say from heaven, it means from God. The Jews uh, would not use God's name. And so oftentimes we see the kingdom of heaven as opposed to the kingdom of God. Or this specific text says, was John's baptism from heaven? That's because they didn't use, the name of God was so sacred, they didn't use the name of God. So Jesus says, was this from God or was it from men? And Jesus then says, and he demands, he says, answer me. So he puts them on the spot. They are in front of Many, many people who have come to the temple, and now, here they are. They pursued it. They locked themselves in to a debate with Jesus. Jesus turns the tables and now makes them the ones who must answer. And now they're the ones who must answer in front of the people. And it doesn't go well. 
If you're wanting to know what the baptism of John is, let me just take us specifically to what Jesus is talking about. Now, when we talk about John the Baptist, and if we were to unpack this story, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, rewind 30 years, uh, 30 years to when John and Jesus were born, almost back to back, and John is the one who's going to precede Jesus in ministry. John begins to announce the kingdom, and he begins to preach about the very same things that Jesus is going to preach about, the coming of the kingdom. The difference between John and Jesus, if you notice where Jesus is right now, Jesus is in the temple. He is in uh, exactly the place where the center of worship is and where the seat of power is. Where did John minister? John was out in the deserts. John was out far from the the center of this group's power. When we talk about the chief priests, we talk about uh, the scribes, and we, we talk about the elders. Where was their seat of power? Where did they, they, where did they rule from? Jerusalem. But John is out in the desert. And John is calling people to repentance. And just so you know that the leaders of Israel did not embrace John. They did not embrace his message. But they did send out folks to go listen to him. Here's an account, Matthew 3, 1 to 12, because I want you to see what they're talking about when we talk about John's baptism. It says... In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the area or the region around the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, notice how he greets the leaders coming from Jerusalem. You brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let me just put pause. What was the whole fig tree about? about bearing fruit. And what was the accusation of John against, uh, in a sense, the the false religion that Judaism had become? You bore no fruit. Okay, let's continue. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, or uh, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What was the message of John the Baptist that these men had refused to acknowledge? This message. And it's hellfire and brimstone, folks. John came preaching a baptism of repentance. He actually came pointing to one who was coming immediately behind him, who would be the one that they were looking for. There's one who is mightier than I who's coming, and he's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Just know that the leaders of Jerusalem rejected John's message 
And they rejected his message because they did not want to believe, one, that they had to repent, and two, that the Messiah was coming in the way that John was preaching about. But they had been warned. So now fast forward to the current conversation. And you begin to understand when Jesus says, tell me something about John's baptism. Was it from God? Was that message that I just read you, was that from God? Or was it from man? Because if it was from man, then John was a false prophet. But if it was from God, why didn't you listen? Now these leaders who have confronted Jesus in the, the, the middle of the temple, in the public, and in public hearing, now have the difficulty of answering this question. And you see them debating. You see them saying, in verse 31 it says, and they discussed it. I don't know what this looked like. I don't know if they pulled away and kind of have a private huddle. I don't know if they said, Jesus, let us discuss this. But it's clear that all of these leaders begin to discuss this. And they say, if we say from heaven, he will say, why do we not believe? But what shall we say? Shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. The people heard John and they believed him. And guess what? They went out and were baptized by him and they were repenting. Their leaders, not so. So when we look at this account... Jesus puts them in a position where they have to answer him. And here's how they answer. I would say, like many of the politicians we see in the world today, which is they refuse to give an answer because they want to please people. Let me just tell you, this is a, not part of the sermon, but just a side note because we see it again and again and again in our culture. God-given leadership is supposed to lead under God and not fear man. You, we are called to do what is right. The world today, the world over, I'm not talking about any specific country. I'm talking about the, the systemic use and abuse of power in our political systems where our politicians hold themselves to no one else besides wanting to please the people. And you see the devastating results. Leadership is given for only one reason, and that is to implement what God says is good and right. All authority comes from God. And so we see, we constantly see that abuse. Step back into the passage. That's a little side note. But they will not answer the question. And they know they can't answer the question because either way will condemn themselves. Either they will condemn themselves and recognize we, John was from God and we refuse to respond, or we will convict ourselves in front of the people. We will do something. If, if we say it's from man, then what will the people think of us? Verse 33 ends the story. It says, and Jesus ends and says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We've walked through the story. We've been through the account. And I just want to now begin to pursue what does this story mean to us. I think by now you should understand the story uh, it, in, uh, in more depth than you did before. But the question is, how do we think and apply this story to ourselves today? Let me just revisit 33 because it's, it almost seems like Jesus did not give an answer to them. 
But you need to understand clearly, when Jesus says, I will not answer you, he's telling the very authorities, the highest power in the court, who come to him and demand an answer, for Jesus to say, I will not answer you, is directly saying, I am not under your authority. Do you see how Jesus answered everything by saying that I refuse to give you an answer? Do you see that Jesus rejected their authority over him by telling them, I do not have to give you an answer? Do you see that when, when Jesus told them and confronted them, where did John's baptism come, from God or from man? Do you see that when they wouldn't answer? It clearly showed that they recognized that John had authority, but they did not want to recognize his message. Do you see the connection that Jesus is making? In the same way you didn't recognize John, you're refusing to recognize me and my authority. Jesus said everything by simply saying, I do not need to answer your question. And then he's going to go on. This is not our passage today. I told you originally I was going to preach verse 12, but I'll just tell you. Immediately after this debate, Jesus goes, and if you want to read verse, uh, chapter 12, we'll cover it next week. Jesus begins to tell of a scathing parable of the tenants who didn't produce any, uh, any of the wine that they were supposed to produce and give back to the owner. We'll get to there later, but just to make a point, this is where Jesus is going next, that he denies their, their ability to question him or his, question his authority. And then he's going to move to chapter 12, where he's going to immediately tell a story about these tenants. And we'll get there next week. But here's where I want to end today. Because I began, I told you, we're going to focus on answering one question. What, by what authority are you doing these things? And I told you that how we answer that will be something that will change the outcome of your life. Open your Bible to John 12, 44 to 50, because in John 12, 44 to 50, Jesus specifically answers where his authority comes from. Jesus plainly and clearly teaches exactly where his authority came, comes from, but he felt in no obligation or no obligation to answer these leaders there in the temple because he wouldn't recognize them as his authority. John 12, 44 to 50, it says, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. Whoever believes in me may not, that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And this is where it, Jesus clearly says where his authority comes from. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, as, I say, therefore, as the Father told me. Where does Jesus' authority come from? From God. Who sent Jesus? God. To do what? This is what I love. Jesus was sent. How has Jesus used his authority? Well, not in the ways that we see authority used in our world today. 
Jesus' authority was so that you might believe in God, so that you might come to the light and no longer live in darkness, so that he might save you rather than judge you, and so that he could preach and teach to you the words of eternal life. That's why Jesus has been given authority. And that is the authority that the leaders of Jerusalem were rejecting. The question that the leaders of Jerusalem had for Jesus is the very same question in front of every single one of you today. As you sit and you hear us speak and preach of Jesus, or you have heard of Jesus in the past, the same question that the leaders of Jerusalem were asking is the very same question in front of you. By what authority are you doing these things? Because if Jesus' authority came from God, that means that his authority is not just over the Jews in Jerusalem, is not just over a time from the past 2,000 years ago, but Jesus' authority is over you right here, right now, as you sit. And just like the leaders of Jerusalem, we have to ask the question. If Jesus has that authority, what does that mean for me today? One thing I want to tell you about yourself, and I don't think I need to tell you, but I'll probably just remind you. Do you know that nobody naturally accepts anybody else's authority over their life? Do you know that? I don't think I need to tell you. No one naturally accepts anyone else's authority over their life. We struggle with it our whole lives. We struggle with it as children. We struggle with it at work. We struggle with it in daily life. In fact, if, if somebody that you don't know or somebody that you perceive as your equal were to tell you something about how to live your life, we actually ha- we have a saying, who died and made you king? Or, as a children, we often say, who do you think you are? There is something inside of us that naturally resists anyone else's authority to tell me what to do, to tell me how to live, to tell me what to believe. And in fact, I would say that's like a sacred cow in our world today, if you want, or it's a sacred belief that is so protected that no one will tell me what to think, what to say about my body, or what I believe is true. Here's what this passage teaches us. If Jesus' authority came from God, and God is the, not only the maker, but if God is the maker of all things, he is the master of all things, right? You get how that goes together? If, if you made something, then you own it. And if God made all things, and Jesus was sent by God, and under his authority, then all of us who sit here today are not the captain of our own souls. We are not the only ones who decide what is good for us. We do only everything under the authority of God. And that, in fact, that changes everything. Remember I told you this would change your life? Not because my sermon is so amazing. It's just by the fact that that fact is so amazing. Because have you come face to face with the fact that you don't actually run your life? 
Because it can't be both. Either you accept that Jesus is your authority or you reject. And your outcome of your life, your eternal destiny is based upon what you do with Jesus' authority. Let me just read for you John 8, 24. But let me just set the stage. You will either respond to accept Jesus' authority or you will remain in your sin. You will either respond to accept Jesus or you will continue living in a lie that you live under your own authority. The Bible clearly tells us there's a way that seems right in the man, but in the end it leads to death. John 8.24 says, I told you you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Here's my invitation today. I want to invite you to accept Jesus' authority over your life. I want to invite you to repent of rejecting him, refusing to recognize him. I want to invite you instead to turn to repent of your sin and begin to build your life from what the next passage in chapter 12 calls Jesus the cornerstone. There's only one place to build your life. That is on Jesus Christ. And that begins by accepting his authority over your life. The leaders of Israel refused to do so. And they died in their sins. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to accept Jesus and to accept his authority over your life and to be given to live for him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. We thank you for how, as we learn these stories of Jesus, yes, it's the last week of his life. Yes, we're learning about Jesus, but we also learn about life for us today. In the same way that Jesus confronted the religious leaders of the day, and as they had, they had to wrestle with his authority. God, we are wrestling with your authority this morning. Not 2,000 years ago in a temple, but sitting here in the sanctuary, wrestling with the truth that you have authority over all things. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.